1: Hey, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today, I'm going to be speaking to a fantastic copywriter. His name is Richard Armstrong. Richard was voted the AWI Copywriter of the Year in 2012. Go to freebooksample.com to find out more. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show with me today.
0: It's absolutely my pleasure, Joey.
1: Richard, how did you get into copywriting?
0: Well, it's, uh, that sort of reminds me of uh, once uh, a little old lady came up to John F. Kennedy and said, how did you become a war hero? And uh, he said, madam, it was completely uh, accidental. Somebody sh- sank my ship. Uh, so <laughs> My answer is the same. It was completely accidental. <laughs> um, I, uh, At the time, I was uh, in my uh, young 20s, and I wanted to uh, become an actor, which is not all that unusual for somebody in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got the kind of job that an actor usually gets to, uh, support himself while he's going to auditions and things like that. And I got a job as an office boy. And what a, what an office boy was, it's kind of like what we, uh, what we nowadays, we get the highfalutin name of an intern. But it's basically somebody who does errands. They, they sit at the photo, stand at the area and, and do copies all day and, uh, run out and get lunch for the important people in the office. And, uh, you know, it pays a minimum wage. And, uh, it just so happened that the organization that I landed this job was, with was a, uh, was a direct mail agency. And, uh, it specialized in fundraising, political fundraising mostly, um, for uh, various political candidates and political parties around the, uh, country particularly uh the Republican Party but it would it it was also um, it kind of specialized in this in the state level Republican parties like the Ohio Republican Party and the Indiana Republican Party and so on and so forth that was their clientele and uh but as i say i just got the job because i needed i needed to survive mm-hmm. and uh i wasn't particularly interested in what was going on there um uh, I, I was there were nice people and I was vaguely aware of what was happening, but uh, it, I wasn't looking at it as a career at all. As I say, I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, one day there was an account executive who was uh, pulling his hair out because he had to write uh, a letter for for one of his clients, some copy, and um, and uh, he was just you know he didn't he didn't know where to start and he didn't have any ideas and. He was just, you know, kind of venting to me personally, and and I said, well, you know, I, I think I can write a little bit. People had always told me in college uh, that I was a pretty good writer. In fact, a lot of my professors uh, would say, in effect, that, well, Richard, you haven't mastered the content of this course at all. But she write very well <laughs> so that you know that uh, would serve me very well when it came to term papers and and even final exams I in other words I didn't know what I was talking about but I said it beautifully mm-hmm. uh, so I fancied myself a little bit of a writer and I told this account executive I said look I why don't you tell me what the basics here is here uh, what the basics are and uh, and uh, who the client is and what they're trying to get across and I'll take a shot at it so i did and uh and the, it turned out the account executive really liked what i'd done maybe he was, he was probably just happy that he didn't have to do it himself but uh you know he made a few changes and he passed it on to his boss and his boss liked it and they passed it on to the client and the client liked it and it mailed and it did rather well so mm-hmm. all of a sudden i was a copywriter and to give you an idea of how ignorant i was about copywriting at the time joey um, we were in a meeting uh, it was kind of like a planning meeting where the big boss of the agency was gonna um uh, uh outline all the things that had to be neat uh had to be done over the next couple of months for all the different clients and there were maybe twenty different clients and he'd go through each one of them and uh he turned to he turned to me after each one and he said, Well richard, we're gonna need copy for that, and we're gonna need copy for this, and we're gonna need copy for that and I'm so innocent, Joey, I actually thought he meant. That I was going to be photocopying all these things, that I'd be standing at the Xerox machine copying all day. And, and when I heard that it just meant writing letters, I was actually somewhat relieved. I, that, well, that'll be more interesting than just standing at the copy the copy machine all day. So the next thing you know, I was a copywriter and I was pretty busy. And they actually made me a creative director uh, after a year or so. And then um, uh, about. Two years into that, uh, I suffered the fate uh, that, uh, just about everybody does in the agency business. And that is that I got fired. Um, which was simultaneously the worst and the happiest day of my life because it was obviously very upsetting emotionally to get fired. And I was about to get married at the time. And, you know, we were obviously concerned about that. But at the same time, it was incredibly liberating and, uh, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a, no more than a month or two later, uh, the agency got back in touch with me and said, well, you know, Richard, we had some issues with you. We didn't like the fact that you drank uh, four double martinis at lunch and you'd come, you'd come rolling in at 10.30 in the morning and you'd leave at three o'clock in the afternoon and those things, uh, gave us some some issues, but we always did like the kind of work you did for us, so, <laughs> so what we'd like to do is uh, hire you just as a freelancer, and we'll pay you on a piece-by-piece business for what you do, and I said, well, that sounds really good, and at the time, I was still kind of primarily interested in acting, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. thought, this will be even better, because now I'll basically have my entire day free, um, and uh, I can work uh, whenever I want to, and yet still make a nice income. Well, as time went on, Joey, uh, as happens with a lot of actors, uh, you know, I wasn't gaining a lot of success in that area. Um, you know, I think I did a, a couple of uh, uh, commercials. It was about uh, as, as uh, far along as I got in show business. But uh, I found myself getting more and more interested in what I was doing to make a living, namely freelance copywriting. And as I added new clients and... Uh, gradually developed a reputation in the business um i became more enthusiastic and more passionate about it and before long i found myself uh, completely losing interest in in the theater and uh, becoming interested in advertising and marketing and copywriting in, in general so
1: uh that's that's what launched my uh my career so to speak and you've been doing it for quite a long time now richard is that fair to say
0: well yeah that goes all the way back to uh i think uh uh, I was fired in 1979, so I've always dated my. Uh, it was late 1979, so I've always dated my freelance career just to, to round off the numbers to 1980. So that would be 33 years now, and I actually have a little bit of experience prior to that because before I got that job with the agency, I had worked for that person when he was the the finance director of the Republican National Committee. And I had worked in the mailroom for him at the Republican National Committee, um, which is the large—it's it, the main um, uh, organizing body of the Republican Party in the United States—and uh, it had a huge and ex- an enormously uh, successful mail order operation, direct mail operation. And I worked in the mail, uh, the ma- uh, the um, um, mail department of of, of the Rep- Republican National Committee. And back in 1972, so um, sometimes I, uh, I add another 10 years and say that I've actually been in the
1: direct marketing business for 30, for, for, for 43 years,
0: <laughs> so one way or the other, I go back quite a long ways, yes.
1: Okay, you have a, uh, a report on your website, Richard, which is called My First 40 Years in Junk Mail, which I read, and it's very informative and a very enjoyable read. A lot of the questions today are based on some of the things that you taught in that book. My first question was, and this is an ongoing debate among people in marketing and direct marketing, long versus short copy. How long or short should copy be? What works best? What's your take on it, Richard? What's your opinion?
0: Well, uh, uh, you're right. It is a long, ongoing debate, but it really shouldn't be because there's a simple answer to the question. And the answer is that long copy generally works better than short copy. Um, there are exceptions. Uh, for example, if you're selling to a market that is already uh, extremely familiar with your product and you're merely giving them uh, a uh, a price discount or something of that nature, then you can do that in very short copy. If you're selling to people who have already bought from you in the past, mm-hmm. uh, they've bought a different product from you in the past, and now you've got a new a similar product that's come in, uh, or maybe it's just, uh, you know, a new shipment that uh, where th- 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 there's some reason to give them a discount or there's some new feature that you might want to talk about. That kind of thing also can be done with short copy. Um, so you can't make a hard and fast rule that long copy works better than short, but you can make a general rule that long copy does. And here's the reason why. It's the difference between readership and response long or short copy gets a very high readership. People figure, Oh, well, this won't be, this is not too long. I might as well read it. You know, there's very little investment in time. And so it gets a high readership, but it tends to get a small response. Uh, mm-hmm. Long copy has the exact opposite effect. It has a much lower readership because most people look at it and say, Oh my God, I'm not going to read all this. I've got time. I'm a busy person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people won't read it, um, but it does get a higher response. And I, I, I'll give you a, sort of a hypothetical example of why this works. Let's say we mailed out 100 letters, uh, to, uh, or two, two letters to groups of 100 each. One is an extremely long letter. One is an extremely short letter. We mail out the short letter to 100 people. Out of those 100 people, let's say maybe 90 of them read it because, like I said, they look at it and they say, well, this is not going to take too long. It might say something important. I'll go ahead and read it. So they, 90 people read it, and uh, out of those uh, uh, 90 people, let's say one response, okay, That's, which is kind of a normal response rate. Nowadays it would be even considered a good response rate. Now let's look at the other letter. And let's say just for the sake of argument that the other letter is 64 pages long. (laughs) Now, not many of us can afford to send out a 64-page letter, but just for the sake of argument, let's say we could. So you send that out to 100 people. Now the situation is completely reversed. Out of those 100 people, probably 90 of them are going to say, no way, I'm not going to read a 64-page letter. That's ridiculous. And so they just throw it away. Maybe only 10 people out of that 100 would even think about it, even start to read it. But here's the key thing that you got to remember, Joey. Those aren't just any 10 people. Those are the 10 people who are most interested in what you had to say. They're most interested in either the way you've, you've approached them in terms of your headline and your copy, or they're literally the ones who are most interested in the product that you're selling. So they're not just any 10 people. And now look what happens. Now you have 64 pages to give these 10 people every single possible reason why they should buy your product, to pull on every heartstring, to use every emotion, to use every argument, to give them every reason why. You've got 64 pages to do that. So out of those 10 people who read it, let's say, just for the sake of argument, two of them. Respond. Okay, well don't look now, but two happens to be a hundred percent improvement over the one you got from the short letter. So, uh, that's why long copy works. And the funny, you know, you mentioned that it's a debate. It really shouldn't be a debate, but it, it has been and it continues to be. And I don't know why you can go back to the 1920s or the 1930s and look at the advertising trade magazines of that period. Um Adage, I think, uh, which is our most famous uh, advertising trade magazine, goes back to around the 50s, but there was a there was one prior to that called Printer's Inc. which goes back into the twenties. You can look at read those read those and you'll see them debating that question back then. And they'll it's funny, Joey, because they'll say things like, This is 1923. People are too busy nowadays to read long copy. It'll never work. So we've been arguing about this for almost a century and yet what we've learned is that the copy has, the copy that works only gets longer and longer and longer and longer. And we talked a little bit uh, at the beginning here about my background when I was starting in, in uh, 1972 in the mailroom and in 1976 when I got the job with the agency. Back in those days, we believed very, very strongly that people would not read long copy. So we would only write one one side of one page, literally one sheet, one one page copy, and uh, and it was like that for years and years. And then one day, I don't know who it was, but somebody like accidentally went over to the back side, <laughs> and, and it worked better. And everybody said, "Well, gee, this this is really interesting. Two two pages seems to work better than one." And then somebody got the bright idea, said, "Well." Why don't we try three pages? And we generally found that three worked better than two. And then we found that four worked better than th- than three. And then we found that five worked better than four. And this process has continued, Joey, to the point where nowadays uh, I wrote a magalog last last year, for example, or a couple years ago, that actually came out of my printer at eighty-four manuscript pages. Wow! That's where things have gone. So the the answer to the question is that. There really is no debate. Long copy definitely works better than short copy, except in certain specific
1: circumstances. You mentioned in your free report that uh, copy is like a smorgasbord. Why is that, Richard?
0: Well, it really goes to the last question, and uh, I, this was not original with me. I uh, um, was somewhat acquainted with one of the uh, one of the real giants of the direct marketing advertising or direct marketing agency business. Um, Tom Collins no relation to the cocktail of the part of the same name you know <laughs> but uh, he he ran the uh, or founded the big uh, ad agent or I should call it a direct marketing agency called Rap and Collins Now since that time I think it's undergone uh, uh, probably a hundred different uh, ownerships and and acquisitions and mergers and whatnot I believe this name rap is still in there somewhere I think it may be called, Rap Marco or something like that now, but at any rate, this is one of the real uh, giants of the agency business in New York, uh, the direct marketing agency business. And uh, I was chatting with him once. Um, uh, in fact, I was interviewing him for a book that I was writing at the time, and uh, I just remember he told, he used that phrase smorgasbord, smorgasbord, and it goes to this very point, and that is people will often say when we're talking about the sixty-four pages. Uh, the 64-page letter, people will often say, well, what kind of person would sit down and read 64 pages of copy? Now, the truth is there are very, very, very few people who will do that, even among the people who will buy from you. They don't necessarily read every single word of it or even every single page of it. But what Tom pointed out to me and what I've discovered to be true over the years is what people do is they do, they, they, they behave sort of like they're at a smorgasbord or at, like at a buffet. They don't eat the entire buffet, but they go through it and they pick out the things that they want. They read the parts that relate, you know, that may answer the questions that they have about it, or they read the parts that they find that are particularly interesting, or they read the parts that, that, uh, uh, affect them emotionally in one way or another. They may not read it from beginning to end, every single word. In fact, it's probably uh, when you're talking about a super long piece of copy, like a magalog, something sixty pages long or longer. Uh, it's it's almost certain that the only people who read it word for word are the are the writers and the editors and the printers of it, um, not the customers. But they do page through it and they find the things they need to sell themselves. And that's why I think the smorgasbord um, is such an uh, apt metaphor for why, again, why long letters tend to work better than short ones.
1: Does humor ever belong in direct marketing?
0: Uh, the short answer I would say is no. I had a uh, um, a teacher once of, of direct mail. I, um, In fact, Bob Bly and I were in the very same class many years ago of copywriting at New York University and it was taught by one of the great copywriters at that time, a man by the name of Milt Pierce. And Milt liked to say that uh, there is no more serious operation in the world than separating a man from his wallet, (laughs) which was the short way of saying, don't be humorous. Don't uh, make jokes because, um, people will, for one thing, people may not interpret it as a joke, they may not realize that you're being funny. Uh, they may not share your sense of humor. Uh, there's a very good chance since uh, humor is often uh, based on, uh, um, you know, um, denigrating someone in some way or, or ridiculing someone, somebody. There may be people out there who take offense at it. Uh, there are just all sorts of minefields uh, associated with using humor. Now, the one exception that – so I've tried to live by that rule in my uh, in my career. The one exception that I have found, I do a lot of uh, um, circulation promotion, which means the promotion of magazines and newsletters to uh, to try to find subscribers. Mm-hmm. And I've found that if the publication itself is very funny, uh, if it is either a humor magazine or a magazine that likes to take a very humorous attitude towards serious issues – Like one one that comes to mind among my previous clients was the American Spectator, which is a very conservative, very thoughtful, very intelligent political magazine we have here in the United States. But they use humor. They love to use humor to skewer the enemy um, and to make fun of the Democrats and liberals and so forth. And so humor is a very important part. Of that magazine, and I felt you know it would just be malpractice on my part if I didn't show the reader what some of that attitude was—that humorous attitude that uh, is so abundant in the magazine. I had to reflect that somewhat in in the direct mail. So that that's one occasion out of hundreds uh, in my career where I can say that that humor did work very well. But I I think uh, if there's any doubt about it. Uh, you should leave it out because it uh, usually does more harm than good. Interesting, I'm I, sorry to interrupt, Joey, but actually yes. interesting is that we have, we in the direct response have world have a completely different attitude about this than they do in general advertising, uh, what we call Madison Avenue here because of the mm-hmm. location in New York where all the ad of the big general ad agencies are located. Um, they all think that humor is the essence of advertising. Um, we turn on the television in the United States, and I believe this is true in the UK also, every single ad is trying to uh, amuse you in some way. And those of us in direct response just look at that saying, what are you thinking? Why are you doing this? People, people do not consider buying something to be something amusing. They They do it for very specific reasons and um they can be emotional reasons but they very rarely do it lightly they don't do it to you cannot amuse somebody into buying a product from you
1: yeah so they they use it for branding purposes they're not focusing so much on getting a response they're just trying to get into people's heads
0: exactly all of madison avenue believes in in some sort of mass hypnosis theory where they believe that if they get the name of their product into your mind in some sort of subconscious or subliminal way that somehow you may not think about it. You may not even remember the ad, but somehow when you get to the grocery store and you see that product, it's going to kick in and your eyes are going to light up like a slot machine and you're going to buy the product just because you remember it and you have some positive association with laughing at the ad or, or whatever. And, while I acknowledge that there may be some validity to this point of view um, I and and it, it may work at some level we have found in direct mail where we have to get an order immediately and this is true of the internet as well we we can't we, we know that if we if if a customer does not respond to us immediately the chances that they, they will ever respond to us drop down dramatically mm-hmm. um, if if we don't get that response uh, that reply card back or that click through on the internet right the first time the person sees it the chances that they are going to remember it write down the information come back to our site later uh, they they go down it's just vanishingly small so we realize you've got to get that uh, you've got to get that response immediately so we don't we don't buy into this whole uh post-hypnotic suggestion uh uh, theory at all uh and uh we we concentrate on on giving the person the, the 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 reasons both logical reasons and emotional reasons why he should purchase from us right
1: now how can we add drama into our copy and do you have any good examples where drama worked for you in direct response
0: well yeah as a matter of fact uh i think um when, when you use the word drama, you're really just using another word for storytelling. To storytelling, and which is uh, kind of, kind of, all of a sudden becomes sort of a fashionable word nowadays. But uh, stories have always played an important role in direct, direct response advertising. Right back to the very beginning, um, we can look all the way back to John Caples's famous ad. They laughed when I sat down at the piano. Uh, that is an ad that uh, uses drama, uses storytelling. Uh, and in the 20s and 30s, um, which, by the way, in, in some ways were the golden age of direct response uh, advertising,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: that uh, storytelling, using drama, using stories, uh, was very, very common. Uh, then it kind of fell out of favor. And I remember even in my own career, um, there were uh, in the 70s and 80s, I felt like I was practically the only one still using this. But I just had – I just felt I personally had kind of a knack for it. Um, And I noticed over a period of time that when I chose to use a storytelling-type lead for a letter, uh, I was more likely to have a success if I chose a different kind of lead. And so I just often leaned in that direction. It was almost like a a kind of a default position for me. I'd, I'd struggle with it. I'd say, well, how should I start this letter? You know, should I do this? Should I do that? And more often than not, I'd come back to well why don't we just tell a story because that's always worked well for us in the past, <laughs> so uh that's what I would do and uh i just I just seem to have a little bit of a talent for that um you know, I wrote a novel once and and i just uh i I just seem to have some ability in that area and uh and so, yeah, I would say most you asked me for an example I would say most of the really successful projects that I've had over the years. Uh, have been storytelling-type leads. Um, uh, one that I can think of in particular was uh, a promotion for an organization we have here in the United States called the Good Sam Club, which is kind of like a... Do you have automobile associations in the UK?
1: I believe we probably do. I'm not part of any or or actually know of any though
0: very famous one here called the triple a the american automobile association association mm-hmm. and it seems like virtually every american is is a member of this or if they're not they know they're very well aware of it um, and the good sam club was like a triple a for people who own recreational vehicles mm-hmm. um, and uh, they provide a lot of the same services and everything and uh you know, when I got that assignment I just went through the same thing. I was confronted with a control package that had been very strong. Uh it was it was very oriented towards uh price cutting. It was a good, you know, a really strong financial offer. And I just sat there for I don't know, probably days staring at it, thinking, What the hell am I gonna do with this? How am I gonna try to beat this? And then I thought to myself, Well, what if I what if I told a story about some guy who's, uh, who's in a, he's in an RV uh, camp, a, in effect a trailer camp, mm-hmm. and he's awakened in the middle of the night by some other guy who's just pulled up with his RV. And that other guy is having all sorts of problems. He's having trouble hooking up his cable TV, he doesn't know how to do this, he doesn't know how to do that. And I'll have my narrator come out and say, well, well, all you have to do is, you know, do this and do that and do the other thing and you'll be all set up. And we'll get the two of them engaged in a little conversation there. And the new guy will say, well, how did you learn all this stuff? How did you get so smart at doing all this? And I and I said, well, I'll have my narrator say, well, the reason I got so smart is just because I'm a member of the Good Sam Club. And he basically gives a pitch for the Good Sam Club. So it's a little story there. It's it's it's. Uh, just kind of a different way of presenting all the benefits of membership. The typical copywriter would say, um, "Let's," and this is not a bad way to proceed. In fact, it's the most intelligent way to proceed in most cases. But they would say, "Okay, there are ten main benefits of, of joining the Good Sam Club, and we'll just start. We'll take the strongest one." We'll put that first, and then we'll just deal with each one of them in turn, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 1, all the way down to the least important one, and write the letter in that way. And that's, that's a very legitimate way to write the letter. But I just thought that we could gain more interest, more emotional involvement, more um, engagement with the reader if we chose to t- tell a story. And that, that was one of the biggest controls I ever had. It, it just uh, blasted the earlier control out of the, out of the water and lasted, I think, for uh, 10 or 11 years before it was finally beat by some, something else. So when I had that experience a number of times over my career, I, you know, it took me a while, but eventually I went, hey, uh, it seems to be that this. It seems to me that this usually works for you, Richard. So nowadays, when I approach something, it's usually it's no longer the last thing I think about. It's usually the first thing I think about. How can I tell a story that relates that will somehow um, feature the benefits of this product? And then, Joe, in terms of telling a story, it's really it you know really goes back to Aristotle and 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 the poetics. Uh, it's it's basic stuff. You have a you have a hero. You have somebody who uh, has a goal in mind. Um, he wants. He wants to be happier. He wants to be healthier. He wants. Uh, he wants to be richer. Uh, and he has a series of obstacles that are standing in way in the way of him attaining those goals. Um, and those obstacles can be other people, or they can be his own. Um, his, his own uh, inertia, or there can be any number of uh, obstacles that have kept him from reaching that goal. But then along comes something that will help him reach the goal, and that is your product. So basically, this is the way all dramas have been written for 3,000 years. Uh, and we're just taking these these principles of, of a hero and uh, a goal and obstacles in between them uh, and we're, we're applying that to, uh, to direct mail. And we've, we've sort of made the, um, the product as what Aristotle would have called the deus ex machina of the, of the story. In other words, the thing that comes in from heaven and solves, every, solves the person's problems.
1: Richard, you mentioned about the 10 benefits of joining the Sam Club. So, for example, are you then weaving those, all those 10 benefits into the story itself? Or do you maybe choose the main one and that's in the story and then you transition into some bullet points, perhaps?
0: You could do it either way, Joey. I mean, as I recall, in that particular letter, I had almost all of them mentioned in the letter. I mean, in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the story ran all the way through it. I think it's probably more common to tell the story in a in a shorter amount of time, maybe even just a few paragraphs, maybe or maybe the first page, and then at a certain point you transition to a more straightforward reason why benefit-oriented kind of approach. So you kind of have a hybrid of uh, of both a story and and a uh, reason why uh, uh, strategy. Uh, but the story serves to uh, attract somebody's attention. And hold their interest, and also engage them emotionally with what's being sold. If they can, if they can see themselves as being similar to the person that's being uh, talked about in the story, that's that's an enormous uh, a leap that you've uh, that you've managed to um, achieve from from just a blank piece of paper with words written on it to something that really has somebody's interest and attention and and um, is affecting their them in a very personal and
1: emotional way. Richard, when sending direct mail, should we just send a blank envelope or should we include teaser copy on the envelope?
0: Well, you know, um, you said short versus long was a longstanding debate. Well, this is also a long standing debate. And the difference here is that this one is still worth debating. Um, there's still some question out on this one. Um, and let me give you a little bit of the history of it. Um, we used, Go back a long ways. There always advertising mail always looked like advertising mail. Um, it always had tears and whatnot on the outside. Then along came a guy by Gary, Halber, a guy by the name of Gary Halbert, who was extremely influential in the copywriting business. Mm-hmm. And uh, you I'm sure you've heard of him, haven't you, Joey?
1: Yes, I certainly have.
0: And he's uh, he's he wrote uh, a number of uh, newsletters over the years, and I believe they're available on the web. I was a subscriber for a while. And uh, so he influenced me greatly. He influ- influenced uh, an entire generation of copywriters. And he still, even though he died a few years ago, still very, very influential. And mm-hmm. Gary spoke about the difference between the A pile and the B pile. And what he was talking about is that when people get their mail uh, in, in, in the afternoon, we usually get in the afternoon in the States, um They they take, there's a big pile of mail, and what they usually do is separate it into two piles. And what happens is that the junk mail and the bills, let me see if I have this right. Well, no, the junk mail all goes in one pile. Mm -hmm. And the personal mail and the bills, in other words, things that really deserve the person's attention, And nobody, you know, thanks to email, hardly anybody gets any personal mail anymore. I occasionally get something from my mother, that's about it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll put those in the, in the action pile. We could, and, and Gary referred that to as the A pile, because that's the stuff, either because it's so important, it's a bill, you know, that's obviously very important, or it's something so meaningful to us, a letter from our girlfriend or whatever, that we are gonna deal with that first. We put everything else in the B pile. And the insight that Gary had was that if you put teasers and stuff like that on the outside of the envelope, you'll get put in the B pile. You could put with all the stuff that uh, might very well get thrown out. In fact, a lot of people uh, have a tendency, especially in large apartment buildings, where they get their mail downstairs in the lobby instead of in their own home, a lot of people will do this, this sort, this A and B sort. They'll do it right over the trash bag. Mm-hmm. The track the waste waste paper uh, basket. So they'll throw all the B stuff out. And Gary said, Look, if you get in that B pile, you're dead. You're never people aren't gonna respond. They're either gonna throw it out or they're not gonna pay very close attention to it. They may give it a, a second worth of attention before they throw it out. Mm-hmm. He said the key to success in direct mail is to get into the A pile. Get in there with the bills and the personal letters. And so Gary and he made I almost said billions, but, you know, in real dollars, I bet it is billions. But at the time, it was tens of millions of dollars. By uh, He was selling a, a coat of arms, basically. Um, I'm getting a little far afield here, but my name is Armstrong. For example, he would send you a little one-page letter that said, Dear Mr. Armstrong, uh, I have just discovered the Armstrong family coat of arms, and I would like to send it to you for just $10. Uh, this is another... If you'll forgive me another digression, this is another sure. brilliant masterstroke that, uh, that Gary Halbert had because he did all this before pers- uh, computer personalization. He realized that probably a hundred names, about a hundred names would account for well over 90% of all the names in the United States. So he figured he would only have to write a hundred different letters and he could actually do this pre-printed. Dear Mr. Armstrong, dear Mr. Scott, dear Mr. Smith, all the common names and cover virtually everyone in the United States. So he actually discovered and used computer personalization before we were even using computer personalization. So that was just a brilliant thing on his part. But he he would um, he would send this very very simple letter that just said we we found this coat of arms of the Armstrong family and it's beautiful and we'd like to send it to you for ten dollars and. He realized that if, if he put that into a plain envelope that had a live stamp on it, not a meter, but a live stamp uh, at, at, a, at a full stamp rate and no return address and a handwritten um, address, not a window and a, not a typewritten address, but a handwritten address, he realized that that would get in the A pile. And once it got in the A pile, people would think, oh my god, what is this? Is this a letter from my mother? Is it a letter from my girlfriend? Is it a letter from, you know, the president asking me to be secretary of the state? Whatever it is, I've gotta read this. Mm -hmm. So he said the key to success in direct is to be, in direct mail is to be in the A pile. Okay, that's part one of our story, Joey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Part two is, there's another guy who's very influential in this country. His name is Denny Hatch. And uh, Denny um, came up with a, a newsletter in the late 70s called Who's Mailing What? Again, extremely influential. Everybody in the business subscribed to this newsletter, copywriters, er, and, and uh, everybody in the, in, the, in the entire industry. It was an extremely influential newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, I'm well aware of the Halbert A pile, B pile thing, but I've been able to determine, well, I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. One of the things that Denny did was that he would analyze all the direct mail. He, he got himself on virtually every list in the country. And he would analyze every single piece of mail that came in. And, and he, as I recall, he used to say he'd get 5,000 pieces of mail every month. And he would analyze it, categorize it, archive it. Um, just make a study of it so that he could tell, he knew that when he got things over and over and over again, he knew that that was a control. Mm-hmm. And his philosophy was we should always study the grand controls. We shouldn't worry about the other ones. We should find out what are the grand controls, the controls that really work, and study them. So having said that, he said, look, I'm well aware of what, uh, what Gary Halbert's been saying about this A pile, and B pile thing, but the truth of the matter is, when I look at the grand controls out there, the ones that come every month, the ones that are ma- mailed in the millions or tens of millions, the ones that are obviously hugely successful, what I have learned is that they almost never follow the A pile theory. They almost always have teasers on the front. So you got a really very, very strong difference of opinion to, between two influential people there
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and I tend to come over on the side of Denny because um, what uh, what I think Denny's uh, what hatch's uh, um, uh, findings implicate is that if you come up with the right headline and the right teaser and if you have the right message out there it selects the right people to to read it and it begins that selling process, and it actually winds up doing a better job. And it may very well wind up in the A-pile after all, because it is so interesting, so thought-provoking, so um, makes a person so curious that it actually goes in there with the personal mail and the bills. Um, for example, suppose I'm really inefficient. fishing. Uh, I just love fishing. I live and breathe fishing. Most of my junk mail I throw out. I don't care about, you know, I don't care about people trying to sell me insurance or credit cards or flowers or candy or anything like that. It all goes right in the mail. Well, I mean right in the, in the trash. But when I get a letter about fishing and it's got a headline out there that says I can catch two times more fish or let's say four or five times more fish with this new kind of lure than with the basic lure, That has my attention. That is something that I am just as interested in as I might be interested in a letter from my mother. Because after all, I talk to my mother every day, Joey, and I pretty much know what's going on with her. (laughs) You know? So the personal letters really don't have that much impact anymore as time's gone on. But if we get if we get a piece of mail that really is zeroed in right on what our interests in, and if the headline offers us a promise that really means something to us, it's actually going to be more effective than something that uh that looks uh like personal mail. And so I tend to uh I tend to say that, that uh direct mail packages with teasers tend nowadays anyway tend to be more effective than those without. Having said that, I would also tell just about any client, once they have established a control with a teaser, uh mm-hmm. they should at least test a blank envelope to see what happens. Uh, because many times I have had clients in that situation where uh, the blank envelope won, including, uh, one, I'll tell you a quick story. I wrote uh, a fundraising package for the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, where I wrote what I thought was one of the best teasers I had ever written on, on the outer envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the teaser said, open carefully, powerful spirits enclosed." And I thought, oh, my God, this is just wonderful. This is the greatest teaser I've ever written. And uh, the agency loved it. And the end client, the museum itself, oh, they loved it. Uh, You know, because it was, the letter went on to say, oh, you know, When talking about the spirits, it not only has to do with Native American religion, but it it sort of encompassed that whole feeling of how, uh, of, you know, the spirit of giving and the the spirit of this wonderful new new museum. And it was just, it was poetic. I loved it. And everybody loved it. So we mailed it and became a big control. But then my client said, "Well, you know, just just to do our due diligence here, just to make sure that we're 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 following accepted procedure, we ought to test a blank envelope." And I remember I remember telling the client, "I said you don't even have to bother doing that <laughs> because that headline is so strong. The headline is so wonderful that that, that there's no way that a blank envelope could possibly." Uh, uh beat this headline. But well of course she she went ahead and ran that test and yes the blank envelope did win. So that you see that does still occur. Uh, but uh, I would have to say Joey that if I were nowadays Gary said look if you were betting Gary Howard said, if you were betting your life on this, which would you do? Would you use the blank envelope with a with a live stamp and a handwritten address, or would you use a letter with a teaser. If you were betting your life on having the person open it. And he said, obviously you would use the blank envelope. But I think that's changed. I think nowadays, if I were actually betting my life, and I knew exactly who I was mailing to, and I knew exactly what their top of the mind issues were, what they were emotional about, what they were afraid of, what they were interested in, what they were dreaming about, if I had all, if I knew with absolute certainty all those factors, then I would rather have the teaser on the outer envelope. Brilliant. Man, that's a really long way to answer your question, but I hope I did it.
1: It was a great answer. It was fantastic to hear both sides and also that in some cases the results are going to differ. So I guess maybe try the teaser copy, get it working, and then see if you can beat the control with a blank envelope test. So yeah, a really great answer. Thank you.
0: Exactly, I get a little frustrated with people who say, well, you've got to test everything in order to know anything, and, and I do believe in testing, but it's not just, it's not really good real, real world advice, because it's very expensive to run tests. And so when, when, uh, consultants or gurus say, well, there is no answer to that, you're gonna have to test it. Yes, uh, that would be nice. In a perfect world, it would be nice to be able to test every single variable on a direct mail piece, but the truth of the matter is we ha- we do have to make these decisions blindly, and uh, so it's it's best to know what uh, what usually works. And uh, mm-hmm. and as I say, usually teasers do uh, outperform
1: non-teasers, and usually long copy does perform a short copy. Okay, what is a lift letter, and how can it increase our response rate? Do you have any tips for getting the most? from a lift letter
0: well I actually know the guy who invented the lift letter believe it or not that gives you an idea of how old I am Joey because uh, it's a guy by the name of Paul Michael and uh, he was a great copywriter he started out working for Greystone Press which was a publisher of encyclopedias and other how-to book- books that was very very big in the 60s and into the 70s and um, he was the one who invented the lift letter and it was really just a little additional note that went along into the envelope in addition to the main letter. It just looked like it was something that was kind of thrown in as an afterthought, usually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sometimes it's called, was called at the, back then it was called a pub letter because sometimes it came from the publisher. Usually the main letter came from the editor of the book or the editor of the magazine and the lift letter came from the publisher. So some people called it a pub note. Uh, but it was a, just an, an additional letter, usually on a smaller piece of paper. A lot of times it was 7 by 10, folded in half. And um, it, it always came from a different signatory, somebody who did not sign the main letter. And its purpose was to overcome last-minute objections. In other words, the idea was that you have somebody who's pretty much sold on the whole thing based on what he's read in the letter and the brochure and everything, and he's just kind of teetering on the edge, not sure, well, you know, it's a lot of money. I'm not sure if I should do this or not. And the lift letter, it was designed to just give one little extra push and usually did so by answering the kind of questions that the person would have um when they're on that, in that moment of truth, they'll sort of ask themselves questions like, is this really too much money? Uh, am I gonna be on the hook for something that they're gonna come back later and I'm, I'll have committed myself to something that I don't want? And, and questions like that, you know, that go through a person's head before they buy something. Mm-hmm. And so, Paul Michael, who wrote the very first one for Greystone Press, Wrote, wrote it in such a way so that when it was folded, it said on the outside, don't reopen this letter unless you've decided not to buy such and such a product. Which is, was a very, very clever, uh, psychological approach. It's kind of like wet paint, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a big sign there, somebody's just painted a bench or something, it's marked wet paint, and everybody goes by it, has to touch it. <laughs> Because, because they just gotta check to see if it's wet, you know. So you, he put this big headline out there that said, do not open this thing. Do not read it. Unless you happen to be among this group of people who don't, who don't wanna, who have decided, not yet decided to buy. So everybody reads it, obviously, because you've been told not to read it. Mm -hmm. So you Mm -hmm. open it up, and it always, in, in Paul's case, they always began the same way. They always said, dear friend, frankly, I'm puzzled. (laughs) <laughs> that every, every single one began that way, and said, frankly, I'm puzzled. You know, here it is. We've offered you this, and we've offered you that, and we've offered you treasures beyond belief. We've offered you all the concubines you want for the rest of your life. We've given you all this, and yet still experience tells us that really only about 1% of the people who receive this will buy. And I'm, I'm puzzled by that. I don't understand that. Maybe it's, maybe it's because of this. Maybe because you're worried about this. Or maybe it's because you're worried about that. Or maybe it's because you're worried about the other thing. And one at a time, he would raise these objections and knock them down. You know, well, don't worry about that because of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> so that was the way they were originally written. Over a period of time, they became so successful um uh and and the reason why they were uh they came to be known as lift letters rather than pub notes is because they almost always gave a little lift to the response rate so they became known as the lift letter and they became so much of um uh, so de rigueur in other words that they, they really became one of the conventional standard pieces of the direct mail package you think you know, you'd sit down at a creative uh, meeting and you'd say, "Well, we've got to have an, an outer envelope. We've got to have a letter. We've got to have a brochure. We've got to have a reply card. We've got to have a B.R.E. and we've got to have a lift letter." People didn't even think that they wouldn't have one. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, while they they kind of uh, followed that uh, uh, Paul Michael um, uh, structure in the in the early years, frankly, I'm, I'm puzzled uh, and uh, do not open it unless. Uh, over a period of time, they evolved, and they would just become a way to 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 get another voice in there. But uh, when you ask me how can you make them effective, I would say the the best way to make them effective is to go back to that original structure. Now, I, I don't mean say use the words. Frankly, I'm puzzled because they're probably even even at this late this stage, that's probably a little cliched but use them to overcome last-minute objections. Try to to get in in your product's head and find out what he is thinking about at the moment of truth, at the very moment when he's almost ready to send you money. What are the possible reservations that he could have remaining in his mind that may stop him from buying? And how can I overcome him, overcome these objections in such a way that I will ease any fears or anxieties that the person has about purchasing the product? And if you go, I think if you go back to that strategy, that original strategy that led to the creation of the lift letter, I think that's the strongest way to write.
1: Is there any kind of web equivalent of that, Richard, of a lift letter in the online scenario?
0: Oh boy, that's a good question. You know, I haven't done a lot of, um, I haven't done a lot of web marketing work. I've done some, I've written some emails. I've done some web websites but it's not a specialty of mine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: On, on the other hand, now that you mention it, now that you ask the question, I would say that a pretty good, uh, equivalent or, or cognate, if you will, of the lift letter online would be, um uh, those last minute pop-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're just about to leave a website, yeah. and, uh, something pops up and says, hey, wait a second, don't leave just yet, oh, I've got this free gift for you if you stay here longer. Got it. Like that you know mm-hmm. I think that's a very very good uh, analogy uh to uh to the lift letter in direct mail in fact the person who invented the pop-up was probably I wouldn't be surprised if they were literally thinking of the lift letter when they when they came up with that idea
1: yeah perhaps I mean the exit scripts when someone tries to leave your website there's a little pop-up that comes up and uh, tries to keep them so they really do boost responses quite well I've tried them myself.
0: Right. Yeah. And John, before, um, uh, before we get off this subject, I, there is a uh, fellow out there, and unfortunately his, his name escapes me at the moment, but he's <laughs> compiled all of Paul Michael's uh, um, um, packages from his uh, Greystone Press days, in which there are literally dozens and dozens of, e- of lift letters that are organized along this uh, strategy, this structure. Um, so if you uh, were to Google uh, Paul Michael. And lift letter, I think pretty quickly you would find this person and you would be able to purchase that book from him on the internet. And uh, I have it, and it's a very, it's a very good book. And Paul Michael is one of the people that uh, uh, Time and History have forgotten a little bit. I mean, we all celebrate Gene Schwartz, uh, and and deservedly so. I mean, Gene was uh, was quite a genius, and I knew him a little bit too. Um, but uh, you know, Gene left behind a great book, Breakthrough Advertising. Uh, and so that's why he's still famous to this day. But Paul Michael uh, did not write a book, so people don't remember him. But uh, he was uh, he was really the great ones of his time. And it was very it was a very clever idea of this young man to uh, uh, to go back and assemble all those pieces. Very valuable. And and frankly, uh, I don't see it uh, mentioned very often on the copywriting uh, um, uh, bulletin boards and things. So it might be something that uh, your listeners could. Uh, Go and maybe have a little advantage
1: over other people. Yeah, brilliant. Because, like you said, there's certain things that you hear all the time. I've been around for a few years now and I've not heard of Paul Michael before um, or that Lift Letter compilation. So fantastic. That's a great piece of advice and uh, I'm definitely going to go check it out myself. Thank you. My last question, Richard, was for any inspiring freelancers out there, would you say it's better to position yourself as a specialist in one certain area? or to be a generalist and write copy for all different types?
0: Well, I think you've touched on, like, all the major debates out there, haven't you, Joe? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. That's a a very good question. And here's one where there isn't much debate. It is definitely, definitely better to be a specialist than a generalist. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that is simply because – well, there are two reasons. The first reason is clients prefer to deal with specialists. They want to hire somebody who has done something exactly what the exactly like the project that they currently have in mind, mm-hmm. and not only that, they want somebody who has done one that was extremely successful. That's what they're always looking for. Mm-hmm. So they they have a very hard time making a leap uh, from uh, from one thing to another. Um, I'll give you an example from my own career. For example, I remember one amazing telephone conversation i had with somebody once this is back when i was mostly doing fundraising and he was working for i don't know the american kidney transplant foundation or something like that i can't remember the the the, the right name but it had something to do with kidney disease and he called me up and he said uh uh what well, do you do uh have you done any direct mail copywriting and i said well yeah that's what i do i'm a direct mail copywriter. that's the, everything i virtually everything i do is direct mail copy i occasionally i write i've written some brochures and speeches and annual reports, but most of that is on the side. I'm pretty much direct mail copywriter. He said, well, yeah, but have you done any fundraising before? And I said, well, sir, this is your lucky day. I specialize in fundraising. I, I've, I've done a lot of fundraising, huge, huge controls for this group and that group and the other group. I'm, the fundraising is my thing. He said, yeah, well, have you ever done any work for like a, a disease, uh, you know, to promote research for a disease? I said I've done dozens of things like that. I've worked for the American Heart Association. I've worked for the American Cancer Association. I've worked for the American Lung Association. I've got a, a huge number of samples I could show. And he's, the guy was still unimpressed. He said, "Well, well, yeah, but I, have have you ever done anything for for kidneys before?" <laughs> and you can see his attitude was he wanted to find somebody who specialized in his exact little area now lord knows you're never going to find a copywriter who specializes in kidney disease (laughs) But, but still that person this guy wanted to find that copywriter now, what, what's interesting, so, so you see clients really want, they want somebody who specializes in their little area, but it's also interesting to listen to that story from my point of view because the copywriter, the person who's in the selling position, never wants to be a specialist. They always wanted to be a generalist because this guy would ask me questions and no matter what he'd ask me, my answer was, oh yeah, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. And that's when you're selling something, particularly when you're selling services, that's your inclination. You want to say, oh, I'm good at this, and I'm good at that, and I'm good at the other thing, and I'm sure I'll be good at whatever you have for me, you know. So there's kind of a yin and yang there. Copywriters always want to promote themselves as, as generalists because they don't, like, they don't like to leave any money out there. They think, oh, well, I can, I can do all of these things, and there's no reason why I can work in all these areas. So they always think of themselves as generalists and want to portray them as generous, but the clients on the other side are on this, 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 um, um, long pursuit, this hopeless pursuit, uh, of, uh, of somebody who specializes in their precise little area. So there's, there's a diversion there. But, uh, so in order to give the, the, the client what you want, you really do need to specialize. Um, There are a few more things that I should say about this. Um, Another reason to specialize is you could just make more money. Um, I mean, there's a reason that heart surgeons, for example, get paid more than general practitioners in medicine. Um, If you had a, a, a serious heart problem, a heart defect that required an open heart surgery, uh you wouldn't go to a general practitioner for that you would go to a heart surgeon and you would ask him similar questions you say how many times have you done this before have you ever seen a case exactly like mine before um, And and the the question of price really wouldn't be all that important, even though you could get maybe the general practitioner to do it for a couple of hundred dollars, and the cardiac surgeon is you're charging you a couple hundred thousand dollars. When your life is at stake, you don't care. You don't care about the price. So specialists tend to make a lot more money than generalists do in medicine, and also in copywriting because they have that experience. That's exactly what the person wants. Um, so, um, so, so that's the that's the thing. But you, you do want to specialize, but you don't want to get that specialty so narrow that there's no business out there. Um, I've seen there's somebody on the internet. I'm not going to name any names. Uh, and and I'm gee, I'm making I'm trying, I'm trying to think, but I just saw this the other day. Some somebody had announced that they were a copywriter and that they were specializing in some area, and I thought my God, is there enough business out there to support that? It could have been aviation or something like that. And there's some out there. I mean, I've done some aviation stuff myself, but I would never consider specializing in it. It's just too small. There are not enough people. There's not enough business out there to support it. So you've got to find a specialty that is narrow enough to be appealing to clients, but still wide enough to actually create a business. Mm-hmm. Um and, um, In my case, uh, for example, I specialize in direct mail copywriting for circulation promotion. So I specialize in, in newsletters, magazines, and books. And within that area, probably most of my business comes in health. So that's my specialty. Sure. Um, and and in that area, there's there's un- more than enough business not only to support me, but to support about a hundred people like me. Uh, so uh, and very well, as a matter of fact, I mean that's an area that it, that for various reasons pays rather well, which is another is another consideration that you want to take into account. Fundraising, for example, which I specialized in early in my career, does not pay as well. Uh, but uh, you can often make it up on volume because there's a tremendous amount of business out there and it's, it's less competitive. So you've got to take all of these um, uh, factors into account as you specialize. Then you announce your specialty. You put that on your website, your brochure, however you use to promote yourself. And then the other, the final piece of advice that I would give to you is you don't have to be anal about it, <laughs> which means that if yeah, somebody yeah. comes along with a huge opportunity, and they've got a bundle of money in their pocket and they're just dying to give you that money. And you tell them, you know, this is not really my specialty. And they say, oh, it doesn't matter to me. I think you're so wonderful. I'm going to hire you anyway. Well, for God's sake, don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, don't, don't tell them, oh no, I'm not going to work in that area because it's not my specialty. Go ahead and take it. And who knows, it could be a huge success. And the next thing you know, all of this guy's colleagues and competitors are calling you with similar kind of assignments. And guess what? You've got yourself a new specialty. <laughs> so now you've got two specialties, and that's okay. You don't have to. You can have two or three specialties. That's not a problem. Um, but uh, but the but the worst thing you can do is to just say you, you know I'm I'm a jack of all trades. I can do anything and, and uh, um, any kind of writing, uh, any kind of client that is a mistake. You just, you, you'll be perceived as a commodity rather than as a professional.
1: Sure. Well, Richard, thank you so much for this interview. It's been really brilliant and I've absolutely loved the advice that you've given. Where can we go to find out more about you? Do you have a website?
0: Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, um, it's called Freesamplebook.com. So it's, uh, it's not only a url but it's got a it's got a little uh, offer right in the middle there <laughs> so you go you go on to my website and there's a there's about a uh five or six page letter that talks all about me but the key thing is that uh, you can download uh a book of my samples and it's not just uh, the samples i pretty much kind of um tell the story of all these samples and in in the process i tell the story of my whole career how i got started um, you know what are some of the challenges that I faced? what are some of the uh setbacks that I had, some of the failures that I had um and some of the huge successes and I show samples of both I think I'm the probably the only copywriter out there that shows his his uh failures <laughs> as much as I do my successes, but I think it makes fairly interesting reading i've had a lot of copywriters say that they've really enjoyed it and it's uh it's absolutely free there's no uh there's no hook whatsoever. In fact, I don't. I won't even bother you with future emails because I'm too busy to write them. So, <laughs> so you can feel free to download it with absolutely no catch whatsoever.
1: Fantastic. Well, that wraps things up for today. Thank you all for tuning in. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, Joey, it's been a great pleasure. There's uh, there's for an egotist like me. There's no no more fun way in the world to spend an hour than to do it talking about yourself. <laughs>